Hey up friends, how's it going? This is episode 75 of the Looking Sideways Action Sports podcast, the podcast where I try and uncover the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Now I seem to have picked up a lot of new listeners recently, which is nice. So yeah, if you're new to these parts and make yourself at home, perhaps dig into the archive, explore a few of the old ones, or just enjoy this episode, which was the first one I recorded on my California trip, which let's be honest, I've been harping on about for a while now. Well, the good news is it's happened and I'm here. I'm actually recording this from my hotel room in Squaw Valley in lovely Lake Tahoe. Just had a great day up the hill. Come back down to record this intro for my conversation with Sachi Cunningham. Now, Sachi's a surf photographer, a filmmaker, a journalist, a mother, a cancer survivor, and an all-round force of nature who I had the pleasure of chatting with in San Francisco on the first day of my trip, actually. Now, it's actually a listener who put me on to Sachi. Um, when I first started, yes, harping on about this California trip a while back, and I asked for ideas for guests. So big thanks to Tessa Hewitt for that. Sachi's main project right now is a film called She Change, which is basically the story of how women are trying to achieve gender parity in the field of big wave surfing. It's a documentary that is uh, currently, well, Sachi's currently in the middle of making it, follows four women, Carla Keneally, Kennelly, sorry if I've got that wrong, Paige Arms, Bianca Valenti and Andre Moller as they strive to be admitted to the Mavericks big wave event. But really it tells the wider story of how much harder it is for women to make it in what is obviously a very traditionally male environment and that is putting it probably quite subtly, really. Now, it's a story that was covered at length in a big New York Times piece recently, which I linked to in my newsletter a few weeks back, and deals with themes we've come across before in the podcast, particularly in the Lane Beachley episode, I'd say, one of which is basically how men react when women try and um, encroach on what they perceive to be their territory. It's a pattern of behaviour that is literally as old as the hills, and personally, I can't quite believe it's still a thing in 2019 and in surfing of all things. But the lengths the four women have had to go to to achieve the change they're striving for is really quite extraordinary. As Sachi explains during our conversation, which is going to be documented in She Change, and we dig right into this nuanced and emotional topic during our conversation. And in a way, the She Change story is one of being determined to let your own voice be heard. And that's also the story of Sachi's own career which we also discussed at length, obviously, during our conversation. She's a storyteller, first and foremost, somebody who throughout her life has sought out stories and tried to tell them as honestly as possible, whether it's through a career as a journalist, her surf photography. I mean, there's a brilliant section about how she got into surf photography, which I think people are going to get a lot out of, um, and through the documentary that she's trying to make. And as I discovered, there's a wonderful happenstance in the story of how Sachi ended up in the position she holds today as one of the most respected big wave water photographers on the West Coast, and as a filmmaker dedicated to telling stories about people whose passion has driven them into new and uncharted territory. There's also real honesty, integrity and humour to Sachi's work, something that's uh, been evident in the way she's approached the documentary, as you're going to see from the trailer, and also the way she fearlessly and openly documented her own cancer experience which is something else that we discussed during the conversation. Overall, this is yet another poignant, at times hilarious and completely honest conversation with an inspirational guest who's driven to do good work by nothing more than the desire to live their life as honestly as possible and to tell stories as honestly as possible. We only hung out for an hour or so, but we had a really good laugh doing this one, which I think comes across in the chat. 
Thanks, Sachi. Really enjoyed meeting you and talking to you. That's enough of me. Here's our conversation. She change. Enjoy. How do you actually pronounce your name? I didn't want to... Oh, yeah. You didn't want to mess it up. Do you want to blunder um, in there? Sachi. Sachi. Cunningham. Not, does everybody say Sachi? They say Sachi, Sushi. Sushi. Whatever. I really? don't know. Sachi, like Chachi. Right. Um, yeah. What, is it S-A-C-H-I. Is it an unusual name? Is it? It's Japanese. I'm okay. half Japanese. Your and it means happiness in Japanese. Ah, right. So your mum's Japanese. Yeah. Japanese American. Okay. She was born in an incarceration center during World War Two. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Ah, right. Okay. So that's, um, I guess, all this stuff on the border is a bit of an unwelcome reminder yeah. of all that stuff, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Except actually, my my aunt is the only living relative that was in the camps, and she actually thinks that it's probably was better for them, even though they spent four years behind barbed wire. Um, better in the internment camps the original ones just because the families she got to stay with her family she's like at least we got to stay together as a family yeah so and i guess the difference then as well was that um the majority of people in those camps were american citizens right yeah so my grandmother was born in she was japanese but born in santa monica actually and um it's actually part of the Probably part of the cancer. Her mom died when she was born. We don't know why. Right. Probably now that we know this cancer history, she probably died of cancer. And then so she was sent back to her dad's center to back to Japan to be raised. And Right. But she was technically, she was an American sure. citizen. And then her children were all American citizens. But they had Japanese ancestry, so they were considered dangerous. Yeah. It, it, was one of, it was one of those stories, wasn't it, that seemed like a real anachronism until recently (laughs) yeah shouldn't laugh because it's awful but now it's like all right it's kind of happening again isn't it really Mm -hmm. in in a strange kind of way yeah Mm -hmm. so is is your heritage something it sounds like you've explored quite a lot over the years Mm -hmm. yeah do you still have family in japan distant yeah in wakayama yeah and kagoshima so southern japan right Mm -hmm. But your but your life and your family's always been brought up in this part of California. Yeah, yeah. But when I graduated from college, I was very curious to explore that side. So I lived in Japan for I went to teach English in Japan for oh, a did. few years and on the jet program. Right. And then I um, worked in the film industry in Tokyo for a year. So I was over in Japan for about three years, and wow. that's actually where I started my water photography. I was going to ask since so you surfed over there. That's where I yep. I bought my first, made my first money. So I bought my first camera. It was a DSLR, right. EOS 1NRS, and um, bought a custom housing there, found a guy to mentor with, and um, started shooting. Wow. Yeah. But you'd always surfed over here before, had you? No. So but you, you're a swimmer, right? I was a swimmer, yeah. water polo player. Yeah. Right. So you, so you had that. body surfer. So you had that more kind of formal, competitive swimming background in history yeah right so had you ever considered surfing when you were growing up 
I always wanted to surf growing up, but I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Oh, I didn't realize. Okay. <laughs> Which is very yeah. far from the ocean. Yeah. Okay. But, That's going to um, make it more difficult. My parents lived in, uh, grew up in Southern California and we would go and visit my grandparents in Southern, my, all my family lived in Southern California except us. Right. And my grandparents rented a beach house in um, Southern California, Capistrano Beach every summer. So since I was a baby, I'd spend two weeks every summer at the beach and loving it. Nice. Always wanting to, um, well, and also just wondering why we were living in Pittsburgh. Yeah. <laughs> but um, always wanted to surf, but nobody in my family surfed on a surfboard. There were some body surfers, so I learned how to body surf, but I just never had the nerve to, you know, my dad at one point was like, well, just go up. Let's just go up and ask those boys to teach you how to surf and I was like, no, dad, good, oh good, God, don't good do old that. Dad. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's that easy. You just go and talk to these. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder what the reaction would have been. Yeah. yeah. So I actually didn't learn how to surf until I was 25. Okay. I'm 46 now. Right. So I've been surfing for a while at this point. But right. That's interesting because the assumption I made was that you'd probably been surfing since you were young. So Japan was the first time that you properly got in the water and with the and so is the photography thing something i actually learned how to shoot in the water really before i learned how to surf right and but w were you interested in photography before you so that was a, a yeah. passion that you already had right so i i got my first dslr camera for my 16th birthday yeah and so just taught myself um photography and then had always swum been a water person loved body surfing and the ocean and um, in high school, I saw a documentary about Aaron Chang, who's a um, water photographer. Yep. It was, I mean, you know, this is before the age of social media. So sure. I'm uh, someone who grew up in Pittsburgh. I had actually never seen a water photographer. I didn't even know that was a thing. I was just like, what? You can swim in waves with your camera and take photos of surfers? It was just like... Well, clearly that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Really? So what was it about that that sort of piqued your interest so much? Because it was everything. It was a combination of my photography interests and my yeah. water skills. And um, I always was comfortable in the water and body surfing and getting yeah. out there to the breaks. And so, um, yeah, it was just like, well, that's what I, you know, I can't surf, but I know I can do that. Yeah. So you, so you, so you knew you were comfortable in the water. You had the passion for photography. So yeah, that seemed like... Right. So then Japan, you got yourself a, a setup and started learning how to do it. Mm -hmm. So what, what was that like? It was awesome. Um, Whereabouts was, in Japan what was this? Um, so I, I was mostly in Tanagashima, which is a southern island off of Kagoshima, um, which is the southernmost island, uh, so which is southernmost part of Kyushu, which is the southernmost island. So yeah. south, 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 three hours south of the southern tip of Japan. So it's warm. And warm yeah yeah and there's always surf no matter what you know some side of the island there's surf and um it's uh back then i mean so this was 20 years ago 20 25 years ago 25 years ago uh it's, it's getting, getting uh, bad that isn't it yeah <laughs> we're, maybe. A, we're a similar age and i keep <laughs> i keep thinking of things where i'm like jesus that was 20 years ago like, yeah and it's really horrifying yeah <laughs> Or or it could be, you know, we're like a well-aged wine yeah, or something. Yeah, that's when I'm feeling a bit more positive. That's yeah. the spin. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's look at this in a positive way. Yeah, point. yeah. Half so, full. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so I brought my camera there and uh, there was a really tight 
it's very small. I have not been back. I really want to go back. I imagine it's packed with surfers now. Back then, there was just like a handful of... That's what I was going to ask you. Was there, was there a culture that was There was. Surf? There's a handful, maybe 20, 30 surfers max, um, mostly from Tokyo, actually, and right. Osaka um, that had moved down there and just were living the Inaka country life. And um, it was just really romantic. And I you know, met a Japanese surfer that i fell in love with and so i had this just really lovely time living and surfing and learning learning japanese and shooting and yeah yeah, and how how was the the process of learning to to shoot in the water then well back then in the olden days when we had ds um you know film cameras remember it well it was quite hard because <laughs> actually because <laughs> yeah. you would shoot and um, every time you took a picture you, you, had a, you had a little till register noise going off yeah, yeah and you can't review it and you have to wait until you can get it developed and i'm trying to, i don't remember where i got it developed on tanagashima i just remember after that i went to i went on a um, a tour of East and Southeast Asia for about 10 months. This was, again, exploring my Asian identity. I just wanted to know what it was to be Asian American and right. what all these Asian different cultures were. And, you know, by the end of that, I just was like, well, it's this umbrella of Asian American is, I get it, but it's all the countries are and cultures are so different. And at the end of the day, I'm American um, is what I really was the realization of that, that, that self-exploration. Was that was the conclusion. I'm what, American. What, what were you looking for? In that search, you yeah. Because obviously I that's mean, quite a, it's quite a fun thing to do, isn't it? To yeah, I mean, it's just your identity, right? Especially, I think, as a biracial American, um, you're kind of in between cultures and races. And I grew up, growing up in Pittsburgh, there was zero Asian population there except for my mom and me growing up now there is a bit but right so i but then when i was in college i went to brown university which is in rhode island which um had a significant asian population but um it was um still a little bit unfamiliar to me because i had never really grown up with an asian american community right um so i was just like well i'm just gonna go to the source and figure this out and um you know it was um yeah, so it's just about understanding my background and, you know, I people I check Asian American or Asian American other, so understanding what it meant to check that. Right. Um and yeah, I think uh learning the language in Japan was huge. I mean, it's like I that was the most valuable thing I did is I just think you can learn a lot about culture through the language, you know, and so it's really important to me to learn Japanese and to understand that specifically because my grandmother also only spoke Japanese even though she spent most of her life in the US she um, she only spoke Japanese so I wanted to be able to speak with her but of course by the time I got back from Japan I realized that she actually didn't speak Japanese either <laughs> she spoke some sort of kind of you know or like a dialect. old dialect bastardized like oh, right. you know so <laughs> it was right it was, um, didn't really um, serve that purpose as as romantically as i had envisioned but right. um anyhow i forget where we, we well, were well i was just i was just asking you why you you spoke of it in terms of a kind of personal voyage of discovery you yeah. know if you if, if that's not yeah that's it too blunt and i think that's, that's exactly it and i think at that age you know early 20s that's what most yeah i, you, I think a lot of kids that are that's what they're doing right yeah and it can manifest itself in going traveling and 
getting drunk for 10 years or it can manifest itself in what you did by the sounds of it, it sounds a little bit more positive yeah definitely. it was great but so part of that um trip it ended in indonesia right and so when we were talking about the film um development i remember shooting these photos in sumbawa and then you know i couldn't develop them until we get back to bali right what was that like here? and it was at Lakey, yeah, yeah. which I, I haven't been back there either. And Nias, I haven't been back for 20 years. So, right. I'm, I mean, in Nias, I was taking a shower by, it was like a bucket in a well that I was pulling up. Yeah. The fish were swimming in the well. And like, <laughs> you know, it's Sounds like so, Indo. <laughs> in a shower, Sumbawa, I'm a shower is like in the middle of the, this little, I mean, it was, I'm sure it's complete, at least from the photos I've seen, I think, it's completely I think, different. I think Bali's. Definitely very different, isn't it? I'd be interested to know what some bowers like though, because even back then it was, you could tell it was a further flight, couldn't you? You yeah. know, culturally and, and mm-hmm. the, you know, how much slower Western influence had, had been to infiltrate that part of in, Indonesia, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you were surfing and shooting when you were Surfing there. and shooting and in terms of you were asking how it was to learn it, it was just yeah. a lot slower. I think, yeah, yeah. you know, kids these days have it easy yeah get the digital yeah Yeah. have a look at the the screen and they get to see everybody else's and yeah you know so it's great i think it's great that way it's cheaper and easier and but i look at my photos and yeah it was a very slow curve i think yeah so was it very much a hobby at this point because you were um because you're a trained journalist right so did you back then i was not a trained journalist so that came after after this yeah right okay back then i was um I was mostly working in film and I still continue to mostly work in film. In the film industry. Yeah. Right. So what kind of work were you doing? Um, well, back then I, I was not, <laughs> well, back then I was off in Tokyo. I worked for a movie theater actually. Um, and I was doing marketing for a movie theater. It was a uh, 12, uh, I forget how many now, maybe six, six theater complex in Tokyo um, that I was, um, so it was actually owned by a um, a guy who was an exchange student with my dad's family in California back in the day. And um, so he basically let me create my own job, which was pretty one of the best jobs I've ever had. And I um, nice. realized that uh, a lot of just in talking with him that a lot of the films um, he complained that a lot of the films that were blockbusters in the US were not necessarily blockbusters in Japan. And he was tasked me with trying to figure out why. Right. And so I figured that there was probably some cultural things that weren't being understand. A few um, cultural reference points that weren't translating. Yeah, a lot, there was lost, lot, a lot lost in translation. Yeah. Well, there's always those classic articles that come out like 10 Chinese film tra- title translations, you know. Right. Where they, and it's that kind of area, isn't it, basically, where yeah. those, those things are lost a little yeah. bit. Right. So I proposed to watch movies ahead of time and write a little. I wrote, so I, I guess it was journalism of sorts. I would write a little. I, I had this little booklet that I made that theater goers would get. Right. And it would have a little kind of like breakdown of things you should know that are happening culturally in this yeah. as reference points. And I had also, I, I had at that point actually worked on, um, I guess I had worked on two feature feature films by then I I'd, um when I was in college I worked as an assistant in Demi Moore and Bruce Willis's office 
And right before I went to Japan, I worked as Demi's assistant on this film called The Juror that was filmed in New York City. Right. Um, so from that experience, I knew enough crew people that I could also usually, or knew enough people who knew people that I could interview. I did interviews with crew and had right. that in the little pamphlet. And it was fun. And so I got to see, it was, it was amazing. I, I went to all of the big studios and watched the film, you know, studio screenings like months before the film came out and I'd write my little things. And um, they also had the only THX sound system in Japan, right? in all of Japan. So when I was there, the special edition Star Wars came out. So I um, organized a big premiere party that um, we just transformed the theater into basically different Star Wars sets. And I flew back to the States and bought Star Wars costumes and I was in an improv group in Tokyo, um, there was wow. English speakers, and I got costumes for all of them. And we like, I mean, none of this could happen today. We were like storm, <laughs> the, we were like stormtroopers with our guns, and we were in the subways handing out flyers. Yeah, you have a and, copyright lawyer at you these days, wouldn't you? Um, or I just like with the guns and the, I don't yeah. know. Um, that's amazing though, because like you say, you were like, I guess it's journalism of of a sort. But I mean, that's where you're learning, isn't it? That's where you're learning to effectively package something like tell a story you know even on that level it's where where you kind of start to sounds like you're somebody that's always you know found a little path got got a project mm-hmm. yeah and that's kind of where it starts isn't it mm-hmm. yeah and so i think that's more or less been my path is finding my own path <laughs> yeah it was it sounds um, like it yeah so when did the journalism sort of come into it because you did i guess formally study it right yeah, so um, the journalism formally came into play. I mean, I should say I never in a million years thought I would be a journalist when I was an undergraduate. I teach undergraduates now journalism. Yeah. Where you are. We well, are sitting in, here in, we're in your San Francisco State w- University where I'm um, um, hopefully going to get tenure in June um, teaching uh, multimedia journalism to undergraduates. Yeah. And they're like on the path, like, and they're, at that age I had no idea what it, I was a history major right I wanted to make films I knew I wanted to make films back of, then of some type yeah. yeah I thought I wanted to make um you know fiction films right um, features features yeah, yeah. um and got a few I, screenplays lying around well no that was the problem is that I I wanted to work in features because of the power they had to change culture and minds um do the right thing by Spike Lee was kind of the film that right made me want to be a filmmaker because it was so powerful and i my school i was at a public high school that was very black and white and um lots of racial tension and um you know that film just kind of broke it all open and yeah i just thought wow you know this film in just two hours is doing more than any policies or any this is what art can do yeah yeah um so i went to undergraduate thinking I well studying I studied uh, filmmaking at RISD actually Rhode Island School of Design has a partner institution with Brown and so um, and I did video I did a um, so I I was thinking I wanted to make feature films yeah but um, the screenplays were not coming out of me and it actually was very stressful and you know I, I didn't have these like stories I was dying to tell um, yeah but let's see. So I was working at MGM as an assistant to an executive there. That was um, one. Of, that was my last job in the feature film industry, and I was absolutely miserable. 
I was awful. I'm just answering phones basically and listening in on conversations. And it was a pretty, it was a very vapid time. Uh, It was like kind of before the whole indie film thing had even happened. So it was just these big blockbusters with no soul. No substance. Yeah. And I'm privy to these conversations of like casting with 60 year old men and them saying, well, we need a 20 year old, even though in the script, it's like a 50 year old woman. And right. it's just oh, like all these kind of yeah. like the tawdry underbelly. Uh, uh, yes. The, the whole underbelly thing. was just even grosser than yeah. the content. And I was um, disillusioned and wanting sure. to find a project to work on my own. And kind of at that moment, um, an old friend of mine from Pittsburgh, who I grew up with named Bill Shannon, called me and he told me that he had just gotten a gig um, choreographing for Cirque du Soleil, um, which was a big break for him. Yeah. But even more interesting for me uh, because he has a hip disability. He had always grown up with a hip disability, and so he always uses crutches. And um, despite this, um, had gotten this gig choreographing his unique style which utilizes skateboarding tricks and break oh, wow. dancing it's kind of this combination ah, of this break is where dancing your and film project came from yeah and yeah so it's called the crutch right crutch yeah. yeah so i started working on that um ah that's where I, that came from yeah right. so i was like oh well what are you doing now like can i come and interview you like there was just like oh well she saw the story i saw this was a documentary yeah and well, so sounds like it. Yeah, so I interviewed him and um quickly realized I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and so that I That sounds a bit like when I started doing this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you learn by doing as best as you yeah. can, but um at that point I had quit that job at MGM. I had moved to San Francisco to Ocean Beach with um another guy I was seeing at that time, um Jesse Simon, and he was a an excellent surfer also a big wave surfer so he kind of introduced me to the whole ocean beach community and mavericks community yeah and it was during that time that i you know wanted i was seeking uh knowledge and i actually took a um, extension course here at san francisco state in right. filmmaking and i applied to the journalism graduate school of journalism at uc berkeley and so, and for their documentary program, so that's a two-year program. So all these threads started to combine. Yeah. And brought you here. Yeah. Yeah, brought you to San Francisco to yeah. kind of follow both of those passions. Yeah. The, the artistic, the filmmaking, the journalism, and then also the surfing and the. So hand in hand, I'm assuming your your, your water photography had been. Yeah. Progressing. So I don't know, a little bit. (laughs) I mean, I'm still doing it as much as I can. Yeah. But it was really when I moved to San Francisco that it started to progress um, because... I guess it's a unique environment, right, as well, and a a unique community of people to to shoot, Mm -hmm. ultimately. Yep, yep. Especially in in surfing where there's a lot of big wave surfing, there's a lot of... But imagery, the iconography of surfing, it's pretty same, isn't it? Let's be honest. Mm -hmm. So, because that's one of the things I've really noticed about your stuff it's it's definitely unique high and and tuna ocean beach seems to lend itself to that yeah is that kind of something that you found absolutely there was nobody else but me shooting really at all at all wow that's surprising mm, well if you know ocean beach it's not surprising <laughs> just well i mean i know that it's a it's let's say an intimidating environment so that's the issue you think for shooting yeah so you're swimming it was that but also 20 years ago there just wasn't there weren't that many surfers here right you know 
so right the culture and community was much smaller okay yeah right and that's you've seen that grow a lot over the years yes and what do you put that down to um population growth growth of surfing as a yeah you know just sport all, all that social media yeah i guess it's it. like the uk really mm-hmm. just exponential right. growth yeah. really yeah right um and is this when you started being introduced to the women that you're working with now no or did that come a bit later well uh, i mean kind of so some of my friends back then are still some of my closest friends that i surf with now um rebecca wunderlich and Susie yang and beth price so those are three of like kind of the original women that surfed ocean beach and um I actually ended up doing a photo essay on them and Bianca's among them of um, women who surf Ocean Beach for Surfer Magazine. I did a um, portrait series of, I don't know, three or four years now ago. What was the question again? Just <laughs> when you started to, because obviously oh, the, the, project, the project you're working on now is She yeah. Change, isn't it? And, and that whole story. So right. just kind of wondering what yeah. the, the genesis of this was. So let's say. that genesis, it was through Rebecca that I met Bianca. Yeah. Bianca moved here, um, I want to say four or five years ago. Okay. Um, so she was more of a recent transplant. Um, but there was this big swell. Okay, so I left though. So I was here at, um, went to graduate school and yeah. then I got a job at the LA Times. I'm mean, The irony is that I went to graduate school for documentary film. I really never <laughs> thought I'd work for a newspaper. I never thought I'd work in German, journalism. <laughs> I went to the journalism school for the film program, yeah. the documentary film program. But at that time, um, I just was fortunate in that it was when video was becoming popular at news organization newspapers yeah sure and suddenly so, everyone's like hey we need need to make films yeah so there were only um there's only 10 people in the documentary program there's 60 in the school of journalism and i never yeah all of us ended up working in jobs that never existed before we started you know when we started journalism school these jobs didn't exist no, when we graduated we were the really some of the only people who could do the skills that, you know, we graduated with the skill of being able to be a one person band that yeah. could shoot, produce that, you know. So we were um, all picked up, hired by LA Times, New York Times, all of these n- newspapers. Um, and when I was at the LA Times, I, both at journalism school and at the LA Times, my focus was always ocean stories, surf stories. I made it known that that was, that was I want to be in the water. That yeah. was your interest. Yeah. And were they were they happy with that? Was that something I, they accommodated? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I teach my students that I think it's really served me well to have a focus. Have, like a, that. have a niche that yeah. you can call your own. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's. I remember because I started journalism, probably like ninety four, ninety five, and as you as you were talking about, very different industry <laughs> back yeah. then. Uh-huh. And within ten years, it had completely changed. And um, you know, the area of journalism I worked in is so niche, so ridiculously niche. And at the time when I was doing that there was definitely a feeling like well that's not sustainable because it's so niche but then I've, but then clearly what happened was the it, it was the niche ideas and pursuits that were able to survive because right it's such a unique skill set yeah and no one else could do it really whereas the the, the main body of journalism and is is the thing that became disposable really yeah 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 see so that that's that's interesting that that's something that you're actually telling your students because i think that is really crucial isn't it if you're yeah. gonna forge your career in, and in i this. think it's crucial to just be passionate about 
just to have passion for something yeah. and especially passion for a subject in journalism because we both know we're not going to make a ton of money <laughs> doing it so we might as well enjoy it yeah that is true right yeah yeah but i'm just interested because la times like it's not a small outfit is it no so, um, well it got smaller while i was there <laughs> <laughs> small now yeah. yeah no you know what i mean though so the fact that you were able to that they gave you the the freedom to do that is is interesting yeah. yeah. So what, how did that manifest then? What what kind of stuff were you doing for them? Yeah. So I will get to how she changed. This is part of the evolution. No, I, that, I, I, um, you're going to bring us back there. I am going to bring us back. You're going to bring us back there. I like it. So Got your eye on the story. I, <laughs> um, so my last project there at um, the LA Times was a story called, a video series called Chasing the Swell. And She's I, also on your Vimeo arrives. Yeah. yeah. I watched that as well. Yeah. So that was um, a three-part series that was following guys like Greg Long and Mark Healy um, chasing a swell from Hawaii to Mavericks to Todos Santos. Yeah. And um, that was like a year-long prod. They gave, they gave me a pretty long leash for that. Um, That's I had, great. Yeah, it was. I mean, I was doing other stuff in between. I covered the oil spill in the Gulf and um, some other exciting pro- – I followed a 16-year-old that was sailing around the world, a 16-year-old girl who was trying to sail around the world. Um, Abby Sunderland. Right. Um, anyhow, had that pretty long leash to do my thing. I was still a one woman band, so um, I also needed that time to get it done. Yeah. Um, but it was something I'm still extremely proud of. It was um, because it combined this passion. It yep. was a dream come true, really. Um, sure. But it was from that um following the guys and i actually ended up documenting the first big wave world tour for men yeah and there were a few women on the scene back then um but not the numbers that not the numbers we have now um but they were starting to pop up on the scene and obviously that was like well that's what i want to follow i mean you know i mean that's the story that's the story so i just started following that closely um just I guess a little bit more from afar but when I really knew I had something was when I had um, moved back to Ocean Beach and that was the result I mean I guess I'll just throw in a little that so from there to here is that I quit the LA Times I ended up my husband was working he's a we met at journalism school and he's a print and radio journalist and he was at NPR and I was at the LA Times but we were both a little bit um, disillusioned with the journalism industry and um, he had also worked as a writer on 180 South, the Patagonia yeah, yeah. film and so that was um, definitely right, okay. on our minds and yeah. there was a day that I could come back from surfing. I mean, I, we lived in the east, in Silver Lake, it's the east side of it, like almost near downtown. Yeah. To get to the surf is like an hour away. I was at best a weekend warrior and it was just like a terrible surf session and i was just frustrated and um wasn't happening typical first world problems and it was just <laughs> like i just want i just want one year where all i do is surf surf every day yeah that film will do that as well yeah well yeah. it just kind of hung in the air especially that easter island section yeah yeah so it just hung in the air and we were just kind of like well why don't we? You know, we could. Yeah, we had it. been saving money for a house we would have never been able to afford with the money we were saving, but it was enough to buy um, a 
truck. Yeah. And um, I see you did the trip. So we did it. Right. So we drove along the Pacific um, from oh, LA wow. to Chile. Oh, wow. 14 months. Jesus. Yeah. You, okay. So, um, How was that? The other mission was to um, start a family. Yeah. So um, it was amazing. And along the way, I saw this posting for the job I'm currently doing as a professor of journalism at San Francisco State. And um, I did a phone interview or a Skype interview <laughs> in Panama. And then I flew back Epic. for my interview when I was in Peru. And then by the time we got to Chile, I found out that I had the job and that I was pregnant. Right. So right, you um, came. So well, I came well, over and yeah. I did what every reasonable woman should do. I started the job four months pregnant, or yeah. if they want to. <laughs> I started the job pregnant and um had my baby in between my first and second semester and um i've been now she's six years old and, right and so you, um, so you that, that brought you back here and so it was perfect the, yeah. it brought me back it was just providence right it just brought me back to this community at ocean beach that right. i already knew and loved and and a, an ocean that i i really loved and had yeah. missed because um it does not compare southern california la does not Waves do not, there's nothing that compares to the power of the ocean here yeah. in Northern California. Hold that thought yeah. before we get back there. Kay. How was that trip? It was amazing. Yeah. I mean, what was your favorite, what was your favorite spot? That's oh, a big question. You went down the whole South America. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I yeah. loved, um, I mean, we spent actually. <laughs> tell me, tell me the best secret spot that you found. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we ended up spending four months in Oaxaca. Right. So, I don't know where that is actually. Um, Mexico. Right. Yeah. So yeah, my uh, yeah. my Western Central South America geography is quite hazy. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, but um, mainland Mexico. Okay. Uh, was definitely one of the favorites, um, and I've been back several times since then. Um, and then I would say after that was Peru. Yeah. In um, we were in northern Peru, which was actually um. I thought kind of romantically where I had just done that chasing the swell film um, and it's where the last of those that swell ends so right. it goes from you know it goes from um, Hawaii to California to Mexico and then it just keeps going down right in the last of the swell hits then northern Peru so right nice synchronicity yes to that so then. so that's where um we also spent a lot of time and met a lot of great people those were my favorite spots great been meaning to do a trip down there for 20 years never done it should mm. do it yeah should do, do it. one of these days yep. yeah get some sponsors and write some <laughs> get some podcasts i can give yeah. you some people the to Peru tour. yeah see how this one goes yeah. yeah um right so th so really nicely set up for the uh for the for the next phase of the yeah. story yeah where were we going again ocean beach and women's big waves. women's big waves <laughs> yeah um so i get back to ocean beach but i have a i'm pregnant and um i think i i was bobbing around in the water when i was pregnant a little bit but um after i right after i had my child um nami which means wave in japanese um there was this huge swell, um, what is it, MLK Day, 2012 maybe. Um, there was this massive swell that hit Ocean Beach, beautiful, clean, long period swell that I could only watch um, because I was nursing and not in shape and had a newborn. And um, 
but I was watching and knowing, and, and it got a lot of press. It was the first time that Ocean Beach had appeared in like Surfer Magazine and right. all these places. Um, but the shots were all from the land. Okay. And so I definitely saw that as my opening. I was, cause right. as I was watching it, I was like, I know I can get out there. I know I can do it. Yeah. And I was really happy to see that it hadn't made it to the magazines from the water yet. Cause I just saw opportunity in that. Right. Um, so I kind of stored that, but also, um, everyone was talking about Bianca was out there. Bianca was out there. Um, and so this woman, Bianca just kept coming up in right. conversation Bianca and Valenti, I had Bianca Valenti. Um, who, who Bianca is, yeah. yeah. And so I didn't know who she was at the time. Yeah. And, um, so my friend Rebecca introduced us and I was like, I want to shoot you. Right. And, um, because really the key to taking you know you, you, you your part. best bet as a photographer water photographer is finding someone to partner up with yeah. so you you know it's a good thing again for people listening i get a lot of just as an aside i do get a lot of people listening going how do you get into it how do you get into it i think it's the same for skating surfing snowboarding you yeah. gotta find the rider aren't you yeah gotta find the person you can work with and, and exactly. actually put the put the hours in to do the work to 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 get the goods really yeah you? Yeah, yeah, so that was you and Bianca. Yeah, so Bianca and I started shooting together, and I mean, it was a dream because she was an amazing surfer, and yeah. she was also a woman. Um, so I, I knew she was, you know, she was unique and doing things that had never been done before. And so together we... At, at a spot that hadn't really been documented in the right way. So, right, right. Yeah. So that's how the Surfer Magazine um, essay came about. And so the photos that appear in that, article which you can see online if you um google women who ride mountains um i'll put a link in okay yeah. great uh are some of the water shots i have of her and beth price are the first according to matt warshaw who does the encyclopedia of surfing who I used chatted, to live here i chatted to matt I, st I thought he still did live there yeah so seattle I, now i know so he was like oh well i would have been up for it but i don't live there anymore like, yeah okay yeah. so i was like we okay the, the northwest tour that's yeah. the next one yeah, yeah. Um, but according to Matt Warshaw, that is the first time that photos shot from the perspective of the water that seems of Ocean Beach. That seems crazy. Is it's the first time they appeared in Surfer Magazine's history. So, you know, yeah. the original since 1965. Sure, so. that's what I mean, because big again, big part of the narrative of surfing, surf journalism, surf photography, whatever, is there's no new spots. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I mean, it, it does seem crazy so, it's like, um, well, it's because it's like San Francisco. It's not like it's a secret spot, right? You know what right? I mean? It's like the middle of San Francisco. Yeah. It's like, and there's loads of surfers there and it gets really big waves. Yeah. So it just seems like hiding in plain sight sort yeah. of scenario, doesn't it? Yep. Yeah. Um, I think people just assumed you can't, that it was too hard to swim or just like too, no one was just crazy enough, I guess, or yeah. like. And there also just weren't as many water photographers back sure. then. You know, there's a lot of things that went into play. But the fact that that was a first and it was a woman shot by a woman was yeah. just um, unique. Very proud of that. Yeah. Well, I'm, um, I'm sure. Yeah. Have people followed? Is there um, now 50 guys out every time you go out? <laughs> yeah. Well, God, the other day, so there are. There are a lot. And actually, there's a lot of women now yeah. shooting, um, yeah. which is, um, I, I, you know, would like to think is in small part because I am out there, but, um, yeah, it's amazing. It's like at Mavericks, this last big swell we had in late December, we had this amazing four day swell at Mavericks and I was shooting in the water 
and I've only once seen an, another photographer in the water there. Right. Um, this guy, Bastien Bonhomme, do you know him? He's a French photographer, water photographer. But anyhow, um, other than him, I've never seen anyone in the water. I know people have. I've seen photos, but sure. I really, on the regular, you never see anybody out there. Right. And I get out there on the swell, and I'm shooting, and then I swam around to the left. You know, swim out and around to the left. And then by the time I came, swam back, there are four other people in the water. Right. <laughs> four other photographers in the water. Right. I was just like, well, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm my just, angle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, but I guess that's just the nature of what we do. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so now I'm getting to the big waves. Is I've, that got, one I've got, okay. got one more. I've Side? got one okay. more. I've got one more before we get there. Because uh, just in, in keeping what we're talking about, so you start to sell shots basically, and you get in Surfer Magazine all that. So is this was this the first time you were selling shots, or yeah, like the first and only time? <laughs> I mean, I should be clear <laughs> that I really don't make a living off no, of my uh, water photography. Again, again, very few do. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I mean, I think there's probably a handful of people actually make a good living, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've got a few friends that do, like over in, in Europe, like Ireland, for example, and those uh -huh. and those spots. But yeah, it's pretty it's like pretty Mickey rare, Smith. isn't it? Um, yeah. yeah. I had Mickey on the show, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. But it is, it's, it's rare, isn't it? That, yeah. That people can actually make a living from it. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, though, this was the first time I started selling. But you them. made a bit of money. Yeah. A little bit, yeah. yeah. Tiny bit. A tiny bit. <laughs> At <laughs> least it paid you. It did pay me and it got me my name out and, yeah. um, you know, got people like you tracking me down yeah. a few years later. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, Funny no, people, old world. <laughs> people took interest because it was a unique, um, yeah. those f people had not seen that perspective before. Yeah. And then tack on that I'm a woman, it's just was like, yeah. you know of interest <laughs> yeah right we're, we're now very nicely set up for the she change and the next part of the story which yeah. is obviously the project that you're working on with bianca and the rest of the the women that you work with so right so bianca um started surfing not only big waves at ocean beach but um her sights were set on mavericks so she yeah. started surfing there and um the first i don't know if it was the first or second year second season she was surfing there um there was a woman, Nico Sell, who runs a tech company and was a former pro snowboarder who lived in the area and um, decided to have an invitational event for women at Mavericks. So it wasn't officially a contest because they didn't want to go through the whole permitting process. It was a multimedia invitational. And so they identified um, 12 or 13 women um, that were surfing big waves around the world and um iski yeah britain was one of those yeah, yeah, yeah. I know and iski. Yeah, um yeah. they sent um invitations out to all these women and i think they sent them gopros and they asked them to document the surfing they were doing in their different parts of the world and so they had like an online competition of um judging the entries they entered online but then they invited and flew everyone out to mavericks and um had this one day of surf at mavericks and so there were 12 women in the water and I had to be there. <laughs> and so I sure. um, 
So that was my first day swimming in the lineup at Mavericks. Right. And so I was there with my camera. How and, was that? Um, and it was awesome. I mean, it was a smaller day there. So, um, but it was, I, I still remember that feeling. Of, yeah, right. Um, it's a very different uh, place than it's of a magnet you know order of magnitude yeah, different sure. than ocean beach yeah um so um again it reminds me of the mystique of some of the irish waves yes, you know absolutely. like Mullamore or places yeah, like that there, yeah, yeah but they've got that similar Somewhere. psychological baggage haven't they whether you're going to surf and whether you're going to swim there whatever yeah they just have that extra layer of psychology i guess to to yeah. overcome don't yeah. they really yeah so but it was easier to overcome with 12 other women in the water yeah, well, and what that an, support what right? an amazing thing to be part of yeah so it was just electric really um and to be on um yeah so on I, I just remember it was the first time I had ever met um the Maui girls you know Paige and Andrea and KK and um they just kind of showed up and blowed up I mean it was just awesome to yeah. see I, the men do the same when they came over sure. but it just was like whoa they are like you know just didn't think to, they were just charging yeah um and so it was just exciting and i mean i remember going back on the boat at the end of the day and it was Paige, kk um andrea and i think maybe bianca i don't think we were all on the same boat but i i know Paige and Paige was on that boat and i just remember her just saying like we're gonna remember this for the rest of our lives like it was so special um like i'm tearing up just thinking about it um but that's um yeah but that's also when i at least as i remember it she was she referred to us as the badass or i guess i'm not technically one of them because i'm not writing it but as the badass big wave bitches you, you're still out there um yeah so um you know i just knew i had actually i had done a story a video story for the uh, san francisco chronicle about bianca a short profile that debuted I've, on the yeah, day I've, of that I've contest seen that one. Yeah, yeah yeah so i had um done that for that con for that event i had pitched a story knowing that that invitational was happening but then meeting all these women and just knowing the history i had knowing the story you know having the background that i had of big wave surfing and yeah it was just like, well, this is my story. Like, this is the story I've been waiting for, you know. So, and so. did it feel like, you know, a, a significant moment at the time? Yes. Uh, yeah, very. I'm sure it did. But I just wanted to ask the question, really, because it was obviously a significant moment in in big wave surfing for, for women, wasn't it? So, yeah. Yeah. It was very significant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so... Um, so you thought, right, I'm going to... This is it. Yeah. You know? So do you have the idea for the documentary then? Well, at... First, I thought I would just, um, and I originally pitched it as a series of profiles of each of the women. Um, I did always want, I had to narrow it down, you know, I couldn't, I knew I didn't have the bandwidth to do, uh, to, even though all of them have amazing stories, and I, I would love to do a series of uh, just all of them, um, but I had to narrow it down, and so I narrowed it down to... Four, Bianca Valenti, Kayla Kennelly, Paige Alms, and Andrea Muller. And that was in part because they were the best. Um, and they were of interest to me because they were performing at a level that I recognized was going to change yeah. the sport. And the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they also just organically were drawn to each other they were they became immediate friends during that right. um 
that time that we got to know each other. And so, you know, as it, it would have made it, it made it easier for me to document them because they were naturally together. Yeah. Anyhow, I didn't have to like track them each down individually. They were usually hanging out together. Yeah. Um, from that point on, yeah. we started to go on, you know, to stay at pages to surf at jaw to check out jaws for the first time and um, they would come and stay at one of our places to surf mavericks and yeah so so that was the beginning yeah and then it just turned into an even I, it turns out i picked the right four um yeah. because was they it? ended up a few years after that forming this committee for equity and women surfing that yeah. became this kind of players group players league that lobbied for a heat at mavericks and um eventually got their heat and because of the contest being in california um the california coastal commission stepped in um and a harbor commissioner named sabrina brennan brought it to the attention of the california coastal commission that um there were no women in this contest and that this was an um, an issue of equal access to the coast, which is what the Coastal Commission is there to protect. Yeah. And um, so she brought that up at um, one of the meetings that was deciding um, the permit for the contest of whether to issue the permit or not. So can I just yeah. st stop uh -huh. you there? Cause it, so basically there was opposition about the women getting a heat at Mavericks, right? Yes. That, that, which is what led to this. Yes. Because, you know, you would, you would, assume or you would hope that if women that are already surfing at a really high level express you know that they want to you know obviously it's not going to be as straightforward as saying hey we want to heat at this huge contest but the fact they had to resort to like creating a pressure group and then lobbying through local legislature mm -hmm. goes to to demonstrate the levels of obstruction that, that they faced mm -hmm. um so which is um yeah quite quite hard to get your head around in a lot of ways because I'm guessing the argument made was that they weren't capable is that is that is that fair to say yep basically they're not good enough they can't do it they're not good enough and it's too dangerous yeah even though they were already surfing even though they were already doing it yeah so why why do you think that happened well I think that's I don't know the answer completely that's what I'm trying to explore in the documentary yeah I think there's um, something about the great outdoors that um, men maybe seem to have ownership over or um, are threatened by a female's presence in. I think it's like this last frontier where men can be men and it's for men only. Um, and I do mean the great, you know, it's not just um, big wave surfing. I think there's some of these obstacles in mountaineering and you know other other outdoor sports but i yeah. think there's something also unique about northern california specifically um just um page who lives in uh, maui has um said expressed that she doesn't get as much pushback hasn't she doesn't understand the pushback that we get at mavericks is not to the same degree um, but if you talk to Andrea, who was the first woman to surf at Jaws, and she had the first um, tow team um, before that, sh um, she will tell you there was some pushback. I mean, it wasn't like it was a cakewalk, at, you know. Um, but, yeah, I think there's something about wilderness that men just have more, are more protective over, perhaps. Because um, it's a 
what but i don't know you're a man you tell me what do you think it is well i'm just i think it's the arguments that women have always had thrown at them <laughs> throughout history to be honest <laughs> i mean you know or women can't have the vote you know they're not mentally capable enough to handle that responsibility or and so on and so on and so on i think it's the same it's the same story basically but this is this is like a slightly it's just a different manifestation a different area right yeah but also i mean it's just like big wave surfing part of it and is just the um, part of the allure and part of the uh well i mean it's just you you know you have oh you must have you have such big balls right to surf big waves like you're just like the manliest of the man manliest of the manly men yeah, it's the, like the alpha male the, it's like the uber alpha yeah male the language the iconography it. it's always like gladiatorial isn't yes. it you know the way it's portrayed it's very much like you're invited to admire masculinity. Yes. Basically. Yes. And so I think once a woman steps in, I think Kayla in the New York Times article that was about this, um, I think her quote is that like, it makes the guy's balls shrink. <laughs> you know, that to see a woman out there lessens, somehow lessens what they're doing. But surely, um, it. but surely a man um, using very obviously flawed arguments to try and stop that is an even bigger slight on that man's masculinity if you're a big man you can like you you can see <laughs> that but if you are a small man you need to be a big man and say those things I, or you need to puff your chest out to you know you know what i mean though like, yeah that, 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 i agree that, that seems fairly self-evident that if you're gonna i think yeah for a, for an evolved male like yourself it might be self-evident, but it clearly was not self-evident yeah. at the start of this um, journey. Right. So has it changed? She changed, in fact. <laughs> um, Brilliant. There you go. I think it has, yeah. Um, well, Jeff Clark um, wore a pink wetsuit. I mean, there was pink tinges. It wasn't all pink. But Jeff Clark, who famously surfed Mavericks alone for 15 years, yep. um, and vocally and on national television said that the women aren't ready to yeah. surf Mavericks um, at the opening ceremonies this fall was there with a pink suit in solidarity and um, actually drove me out to the lineup on right. one of the days on his jet ski and I should say actually I mean it's this interesting Jeff is actually very friendly I, I really like Jeff and he's um we're very friendly and um so it, it's i don't yeah so it's it's not kind of like this black and white like i understand you yeah. know it's we're not, not like, like throwing punches yeah or, yeah no, you i understand know? it's a very it's nuanced little, issue yeah yeah because because the um the safety aspect is obviously very very real you know yeah. and and clearly that you know it's not to belittle or dismiss that to just say oh yeah anyone can go out there because obviously that's just it's clearly not the point there, there is a safety issue. There, there is a responsibility to safeguard that whole part of this debate. Mm -hmm. That you know, and I can completely imagine that that is coming from a very honest place. Let's mm -hmm. say, yeah. But like we say, it's nuanced, isn't it? Yeah, but Jeff, you know, so Jeff was welcoming. Yeah, and so I've seen change in him. Yeah, I've seen change in um, a lot of the guys that are now right. Actually, you know kind of pretending like they always were like this <laughs> right and um welcoming but it that's okay it's in the end it's the change that's happened and yeah it's such a common theme i interviewed lane beachley about 18 months ago 
seven world titles. Yeah. And, um, you know, she just, she just, the stories she had about the struggle she had to get accepted was actually unbelievable, you know. Oh, Um, despite the, uh, the levels of achievement that she, you know, and still every, every day it seemed had to, fight another little battle to prove herself you know yeah. her achievements in real life weren't actually enough you know yeah um yeah it's a very like like we're saying it's a it's a common common thing isn't it basically yeah. um so how's the film going because you're funding it right i'm trying to fund it yeah so if anyone out there listening wants to <laughs> fund my film this is where as regular listeners know i say there'll be a link in the show notes okay yeah um yeah so uh the film i've been filming with sweat equity for the last four years mostly by myself um i have recently uh partnered up with um well for the last few shoots i've been working with a director named luisa hoyos who directed the cove which is um, yeah the japanese slaughter in japan and so he's been helping as an executive producer um and through him i'm hoping to find some new funding avenues right because um, he's quite connected um but he's also introduced me to um, a producer named adrian hall who um has introduced me to some other yeah camera people and he's just basically um well i've also had a budget to work with a small budget i got a seventy-five thousand dollar grant from the gold hirsch foundation which is based in LA and um, that has enabled me to do some really uh, up my game on yeah. my production side. It's not just me with a camera. Yeah, so yeah. the last few shoots I've been able to actually have like a, just direct. I've had a camera person and a, or two camera people and a yeah. sound person. And, you know, so it's been quite luxurious actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um we just did um i just had some meetings in la this week actually um speaking with some um, potential funders and um, i'm working with a nonprofit there called creative visions foundation so they um are who my grant went through so they're a nonprofit that if somebody wants to donate through the nonprofit, they take a percentage and um they are also helping to find people to fund this i'm hoping yeah. but i'm looking at a budget of 1.2 million dollars now um which is a lot of money but yeah. as louis has said if you want to play with the boys you have to have the same budget as the boys well i mean a big theme of your of this film is uh, and, and, and of the women's story is how much more difficult it is for even them to fund what they do and clearly you're talking about how difficult it is for you to fund what you do yes and and, and you know obviously that overarching thing there is that basically the industry doesn't support telling these stories as much as it supports telling men's stories right so absolutely do you, do i you, mean do you I, think that's had something to do with this do you think that it, that ju- it just absolutely. is harder absolutely i mean if i was a guy making this film i think it probably would have been made by now well it's been loads of films made about men's big wave surfing yeah. with huge budgets hasn't yeah there? exactly yeah yeah, and um, this is a great story with, a, you know, I have 20 years of experience under my belt and lots of awards. And yes, I don't think it's, I think there's a very parallel thing happening with me working as a woman in the film industry that is happening with the women in the big wave world. Um, but that's why, in part why I've, I've inserted myself in the story. I will be doing kind of a 
light narration. Yeah, well, it's of first it. person, isn't it? That yeah. Was, I, I was going to ask you that actually, because it's a it's a big editorial decision, that isn't it? What what yeah. was the, what was the reason for that? It um, just really struck me when I watched the trailer. Yeah, there were a few things. There was something I wanted to say about that budget, though, and the being a woman. Oh, it's just a lot of guys. The first thing people will say, well, what? why don't you just get their sponsors to you know the first thing guys why don't you just get the sponsors yeah, to pay for sure it pay and for i'm it. like well they don't have sponsors yeah, we got any sponsors <laughs> yeah. so there's that yeah um but which is insane as well really yeah it? so um what was the question again first person yes so that narrative. was a very b big decision because yeah. all of my films so far and all everything i did for the la times and i, I worked for frontline so very kind of serious yeah journalism where you're, where you're a very fly much, on the whole you're very wall. much not the presence exactly yeah. um and that's where i'm most comfortable is to be just a fly on the wall um but a few things uh one was that um my story got a little more complicated um in that about two years into filming, I was diagnosed with fallopian tube cancer. And that was the result of, um, well, I have a family history of cancer. My mom had... Yeah, you alluded to it earlier, yeah. Yeah, my mom had breast cancer when she was born. And when I was born, sorry, when she was 30 um, and I was born, she had breast cancer. And um, she had a radical mastectomy, and um, which is all they did back then, where they cut down to the bone, they yeah. cut down everything. Um, and then when she was 45, she was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer, which she died from when she was 49. And so because of that history, I qualified to take, um, I was high risk uh, for cancer. And at, by, I was fortunate enough by the time I was um, in my 40s there was this blood test that you could take um to see if you could had the brca1 or BS, brca2 gene um which still a lot of people don't know about um angelina jolie is probably the most famous person who really put it on the map she also is brca1 positive yeah and um so with that diagnosis it's just a blood test but with that diagnosis i was given a 60 percent chance of having ovarian cancer and a 90 percent chance of getting a breast cancer yeah and um i had made the decision before i got the test and for anyone who wants to test take the test my recommendation is to know what you're going to do before you take the test because you know then you just don't have to agonize and yeah then you're not you're removing the emotional aspects of it yeah. yeah so if you can do it beforehand yeah yeah i mean it's a very emotional to get to that point of, of course, whether to even get tested and yeah, whether course. to and knowing what you're going to do but i actually took the test because we were considering having a second child but i was just like i need i just should take this test yeah. um and so it was just no question i knew that i was gonna I, I got a double mastectomy and a total hysterectomy and when they took everything out they found a two millimeter tumor had already started growing in my fallopian tubes and there were some cells, loose cells that they found. And so they, I went through six rounds of chemo and lost all my hair and my eyelashes and everything. And, um, which but you documented very openly. I did. Um, you know, it's empowering. I think to, I think a lot of cancer patients do that now. It's yeah. actually kind of part of the recommended treatment almost. Okay. Is, and with cell phones and everything, I think it's there's something empowering about that. Yeah, to feel like you're almost controlling the story that you're telling about yeah. your illness. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, fortunately, I was able to still swim during that time. I didn't have a port 
um, so I could still get in the water and I got the go ahead for my doctor to still go in the water. So I was still able to shoot. Not all the time. It was not always um, easy. I would get like very lightheaded and because um, I just had less oxygen and my blood cell count, red and white blood cell count was low. So um, yeah. and I, I actually get I got a bloody noses in the water. Um, and uh, yeah, but I attribute my recovery from all of that. Um, a large, in large part to that time in the water. I think really? that it was definitely part of my treatment right. swimming in the big waves and, and actually swimming in, it was in all of that swimming I had done before, I think really was just the mental workout I needed, um, to prepare myself for dealing with cancer. Um, because I think there's just a very direct analogy between swimming in this surf this huge surf that you don't know what's going to happen next. All you know is that what comes might kill you. So you, all you can do is just try and be calm in that moment and try and turn it into something magic and beautiful. So that is what I tried to do. And, um, I luckily, um, recovered, you know, I, my hair grew back and, um, I'm just had my last check. So I'm two and a half years now. Okay. Um, still don't know what will happen next. I have this gene that wants to make cancer. So we'll see. They gave me though. Um, now my chance of getting cancer is, um, 10%. Right. So greatly reduced. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So this was, this part of the story was what made you feel like you should change the narrative, narrative focus yeah. of the project and put yourself in it a little bit more. Yeah, I'm trying to think, though. I might have wanted to do it a little bit beforehand, though, also because, um, in part, because I just felt like it, to be um, authentic to the story, I was part of the story, you know, as a photographer and, and filmmaker. And, you know, while I'm filming as a one-woman band, they're, like, talking to me, you know, I'm, I'm not like, just pretend I'm not here. You <laughs> yeah. know, they're just like talking yeah. to me. And I just was like, you're well, a, let's you're just, a character anyway. Yeah, yeah, let's just break this wall down. And yeah. I think in um, narratives, uh, I think it's becoming more common to have that that wall Definitely. being broken down. So I think it's much more accepted now. And um, But it's not a comfortable place you know it's not a familiar place uh to be telling the story from so that has been um a leap but i'm i'm making it yeah you're getting <laughs> used to it yeah 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 i bet i bet when you spent your whole career very much ensuring you're not part of it it's a huge change to sort of get your head around and and feel comfortable with really yeah yeah so what can people do to support the project they can donate money directly. If you go to shechangethefilm.com, there is a donate button that will go to a PayPal account that will directly fund the film. And um, I have, if they want to donate, they if they want to get a tax donation, I'm sorry, tax deduction if yep. they're uh, for that donation, they can donate through Creative Visions Foundation, which there's also a link to donate through there. They take a 7% cut of that, though, so... Um, keeping that in mind um they can decide how they want to donate or i mean we're looking for rather large numbers every dollar definitely helps um sponsors but um yeah. maybe there's a sponsor or maybe there's um just someone 
who has a hole burning in their pocket <laughs> that wants to throw a couple hundred thousand yeah, dollars. They, There's a lot of those people out there, especially so, in the Bay Area. I was going to say, especially in this town. Yeah. Jesus. I just haven't a lot of money around there. found my unicorn, <laughs> but my, my narwhal is out there. It's like most of the advertising money in the world ending up in this part of the world. It is a little um, difficult to be, uh, yes, constantly in circles of people that you know could fund the film a few times over i've only been here a day yeah <laughs> <laughs> but uh yes there's a great deal of wealth in this yeah. town yeah but um uh you know the problem is that i can't it's not an investment uh that will necessarily make money films are terrible investments you know and i'm upfront about that documentaries are terrible investments um Sure, they can make money, but I can't really guarantee that it will make money. What it is an investment of is cultural capital, you know, and social well, change. The most important um, reason to invest in culture, I would, I would say. I think so. That's another podcast, that one, though, isn't it? Really. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, have you got a timeline that you're? thinking that yeah working well, towards i feel like we have got some really good momentum now um and i um think that now that the mavericks contest is not happening we just found out a few days ago that they're not there was a swell there is a swell that's hitting this weekend that they were looking at to potentially run the contest the contest window closes march 31st so it's fairly safe to say that that's probably not going to happen um, which I think is actually a good thing for the project because that gives me more time to raise money. And yeah. um, ideally, what I'd like to do is raise um, 300000 by June, which would enable me to get started with an editor that I have um, waiting to work on this. And that's always hard to find an editor on docs because they get tied up for like years at a time. Hopefully I have money to get the editing started, but then at a certain point, you know, I, I probably only have about... 40-50% of the film shot. I've held off on doing a lot of the interviews because I want them to all kind of look the same and be, um, yeah. you know, just production-wise, it just makes sense to... Um, I've held off. I've, I've been shooting the stuff that I knew I couldn't reshoot, you know, yeah. and the stuff I knew I could get later, I, I've, I've put that to the side. So, um, so at a certain point, she'll run out of things to edit. So I... What ideally is I'll be doing some shooting in tandem with that, mostly interviews. I'll also be having, you know, assistant editors and archivists. Like I, I, I there's going to be a large archival component of this because yeah. I would like to show visually. I think people outside of surfing don't really understand how sexist the sport has been historically. And so I'd like to have a visual representation of, of that and what these women were up against, you know. Yeah. Um, and then archival from the women themselves because um you know a lot of them have also been in media from a young age and yeah. so, so that it's i'd out like there. to yeah. yeah so i'd like to really dive deep into their personal stories i think what's missing for me in most action sports documentaries um especially uh big wave documentaries is that you great gorgeous beautiful footage but by the end of the film, you still know nothing about the person. And for me, that's what's interesting. I want to know more about that person and what motivates them and why they're doing what they're doing. And yeah. so um, I would like to tell that story through, you know, the people, interviews with people in their lives, but also archival. And yeah, so so some shooting. And then ideally we get this all 
almost edited by the time the season starts next year. And um, we wait for the Mavericks contest to happen and slot that in. And yeah. we can release it shortly after the Mavericks contest. So that's 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 the plan. That's what's going to happen. That's yeah. the vision. I'm envisioning it. <laughs> this is Spring equinox just happened, yeah. you know. Glass, so there's like half full again. Yeah. New, new beginnings. <laughs> yeah. It's happening. Well... Let's uh, see if we can get you a few quid off people listening to this, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Or contacts. Yeah, yeah. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. I did too. Great. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> so there you go. That was my conversation with Sachi. And I hope you got as much out of it as I did. I really do implore you to go and check out Sachi's work. You can find links through the show notes over on my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com. Or you can head on over to her website, shechangethefilm.com, where you can find out more and you can donate. The stories told in the surf and wide action sports world are generally from a very male perspective. It's always been that way. As I think we uh, we heard then and we know from the conversations that have been taking place on the podcast over the years, there's not. it's difficult for women to get a voice in this world. And if we want to change that, then we've really got to get behind a project like She Changed to demonstrate that there is an appetite for this alternative narrative. And that starts by donating to projects like this. Big thanks to Sachi for taking the time to speak to me and for getting into the spirit of the thing so wholeheartedly. Right, so housekeeping corner. So yeah, I'm in the States and I was in San Francisco. And if you've seen, if you'll have seen, as you, if you follow me on Instagram, guys, as a mouthful, but I'm going to go with it. Um, while I was there in San Francisco, I did the Alcatraz swim, which was actually a really enjoyable, beautiful experience, to be honest. It's also a salutary reminder that everybody's definition of, of normal is unique to them. I got a lot of comments from people that routinely do stuff that I would consider that would make me uncomfortable, saying stuff like, you're a nutter, you're a nutbag. I mean... Now it's a queer as folk, eh? Anyway, I've wanted to do it for years, to be honest. Uh, kind of assumed it'd never happen. Um, and even when I knew I was coming to San Francisco for 48 hours, I didn't even, I didn't give it much thought, really, because I thought, well, I've got loads to do, and it's, you know, what are the odds? Um, anyway, so a couple of days before I left, I was randomly talking to a friend of mine who was in San Francisco, which I didn't know. We were just talking on the phone. And I was like, what have you been up to? And she said, well, I did the Alcatraz swim yesterday. You should do it. I was like, oh, right, Alcatraz. Oh, yeah, okay, right, what's the deal? She's like, well, I'll put you in touch with the guys that took me out. So I emailed Sylvia at Pacific Swim Co, who got back straight away and was like, yeah, no worries, we'll take you out for a solo swim. I was like, shit, okay, bluff, well and truly called. But then I thought, well, you know what, when else am I going to do it? So yeah, booked it, turned up, did it, and it was great, really. Now, I've done a lot of open water swimming over the years, but to be honest, I've had the slackest swimming winter that I've had for a while. So it's probably the least physically prepared I've been in years. And my arms are very much telling that tale now. But it's only a mile and a half. So I kind of knew it'd be fine. I mean, I guess it's the mental part of it. It's always the most tricky. Every open water swim across, you know, deep body of water seems to unlock a few primordial fears. You know, some deep-rooted terror of monsters of the deep that I think probably lurks within all of us but swimming from Alcatraz definitely comes with the most baggage of any of these swims that I've done I mean obviously I'm talking about sharks which is another thing that I got people saying to me a lot I was getting text messages with shark emojis you know all that kind of stuff I mean I'm not really that asked about sharks to be honest I kind of it's a numbers game in it you know you might as well I don't know I'm just not worried about it at all um and 
I want this was a good test actually because you know I, I really wasn't bothered about it. The only time I got a little fr you know a little um, murmur of apprehension was just before I got him. Sylvia said, "Oh, I think there's a grey whale nearby. Whenever you get that many seabirds on the surface, there usually is." And sure enough, there was a grey whale nearby. Apparently, not that I saw or heard him. But yeah, I don't mind admitting that. I was a bit like, "Christ!" As I got in, anyway, I just tried to crack on with enjoying it. Really, enjoying the unique experience of swimming across San Francisco Bay on my own with the Golden Gate Bridge on one side and Alcatraz on the other the sun coming up and a grey whale for company. It was great. Um, if you're in San Francisco and you like swimming, then I highly recommend it. And I highly recommend Sylvia and Pacific Swim Co. Anyway, that's it for this week. I've been thinking that I might quicken the podcast release pace actually from one to two episodes a week while I'm out here. And who knows, maybe permanently, I've got a new editor, the lovely Fina Charlson, who's helped me massively streamline this whole operation. So it's possible. Plus, I've got about 20 lined up in the next two and a half weeks. So if I don't do that, I'm still going to be releasing these California ones, you know, in like October or something. We'll see. Anyway, if I do decide to do that, my next episode is going to be the great Kelly Clark, who I called in to on my way from San Francisco to Tahoe. And with whom I had one of the geekiest chats about snowboarding I've ever had on the podcast, which if you're a regular listener you're going to know is really saying something so much so that Kelly afterwards was like, wow, thanks for that. I never get to geek out to that degree in an interview. So yeah, keep an eye out for that one. It was really, really insightful one that, um, you know, Kelly is the most successful female snowboarder competitively ever. So she does have some unique insights into what it takes to succeed at the top end of your sport and she uh, fessed them right up. So yeah, you're going to enjoy it, I reckon, if that's your bag. So keep them peeled for that one. Big thanks to my friends at Visit California and Hertz for the support on this trip. Much appreciated. Couldn't be doing it without those guys. So thanks for that. If you want to see how the trip is going in real time, get yourself over to We Look Sideways on Instagram. Because, uh, yeah, I'm sort of documenting the whole thing on there. All right. Thanks for listening. Nice one. Nice one.